Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Masters of Social Gastronomy podcast. I'm Sarah Lohman of Four Pounds Flower Historic Gastronomy. And this is Jonathan Soma of the Brooklyn Brainery. We're here to tell you all about the history and science of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Soma. Are you excited? I'm so excited about Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, Thanksgiving is a time for family to come together and celebrate the triumph of mediocrity and poor science execution on an entire meal, everyone together, the worst food possible. Really? I hate turkey. Turkey's made out of garbage. I love green bean casserole. Sometimes yes. people try to make it fancy, though. They try to, like, French cut green beans, like, fresh from the farm. Yes! Like, homemade everything. No, bullshit. Take it out of cans. I call bullshit on that, too. Yeah. That's actually one of the things I'm going to talk about. So I'm going to give you a history Thanksgiving and when it came about. Because did you know that Thanksgiving is actually only... 151 years old this year in 2014. Happy birthday, Thanksgiving. Happy birthday, Thanksgiving. So I'm going to give you history Thanksgiving, and I want to talk about some side dishes, because that's where I think Thanksgiving is at. And actually, as opposed to you, Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays, because there's not all this kind of like weird, semi-religious whatnot, although there was originally. Well, I'll give you that. But today, I think Friendsgiving is like where it's at. It's a holiday that's all American. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what religion you are. You go to someone's house. Everybody brings some food. Everybody brings some alcohol. And you have the best time. However, the turkey is always problematic, isn't it? Yes. Because no one knows how to cook a turkey. And everyone listens to what like their aunt's doctor's brother-in-law once said about how to cook a turkey. And it takes so much time and so much effort. Soma's going to solve our turkey problems in one fell swoop, right? Okay, A, the way to do it is just make hamburgers instead. No, you have to but have turkey like, Thanksgiving. No, A, no you don't because you can do whatever you want. I can do whatever I want. But B, green bean casserole. Just eat a lot of green bean casserole. <laughs> you don't need anything else. All right, well, coming up later in this podcast, Soma might tell you how to make a better turkey but apparently the answer is just make green bean casserole i mean this is delicious i tell you but i don't endorse it well i'm gonna Re- tell you retweets about green are bean not endorsements they aren't well that's what you say so so the saying goes hmm, hmm. you've never seen that rts are not endorsements have you tweeted before use uh i'm not very twitter.com good <laughs> i don't know what, i don't know what that is do you want to know where Thanksgiving came from? Well, here's here's my problem. Mm. On the one hand, I want to hear about where Thanksgiving came from. But mm. on the other hand, I want to hear stuff about presidents that I love. So <laughs> do you think you can tie bro, those bro, together? Those things one top? <gasps> I think it can. But we should probably start all the way back. Before there were even presidents at all? Yeah. Okay. Back in the year 1621. Back when the Mayflower arrived at Plymouth Rock. Back 
in the olden days, we sometimes like to refer to. Okay, but here's the deal. We refer to these people as pilgrims. So in 1620, the pilgrims arrived, okay? And they were here for essentially a year, but they didn't actually call themselves pilgrims. They were the Puritans. That was the name of the religious group that broke away from the Church of England, and they were having a really rough time in England. And so eventually they just said, you know what, we're going to GTFO. And the Church of England was, they were good with that. They were like, you know what, why don't you guys just go? Here's your charter. Go to the America. Go to the New World. Let's just... So the Church of England didn't like them. No, no but one liked But then it each was other. just like... Go, I will let you go away. We'll stop being yeah. mean to you. Yeah, that's kind of how America was founded. There were these breakaway religious groups that were having a lot of problems in England and a lot of discrimination in England. So they kind of came, kind of came to these resolutions where they would agree to go to the New World and England would agree to let them go to the New World and they would found these colonies. That's so nice. Kind of. So nice to let you die in the wilderness. So generous. But they would kind of see it as God's will. And, you know, there's this weird other level of, like, they're going to go bring God to the savages, if you can imagine the air quotes around that, right? Like, part of the Puritans' thing is that they were seeing themselves as that the natives needed them because they needed to go bring God. So if they can... It's really horrific to imagine leaving everything, everybody you know, to go to the middle of nowhere, right? So if you can imagine that this is part of God's will for your life, I could imagine that would make it easier. So they come here, they come to Plymouth. Who's they? Say pilgrims come here. The Puritans came Puritans. to America. They came to Plymouth. They founded one one of the earliest colonies, lest we forget the history of the South. Because I think Jamestown, they often do. Jamestown, 1607. Jamestown, which actually was here and was here earlier and had a feast earlier than Thanksgiving. I actually think it's unfair that the history of New England often gets celebrated, but we forget the history of the South and the history of the Southwest. Right? Duly noted. They were earlier. So basically. Earlier colonies. The Civil War was right because... The Civil War was right in many ways. You guys then. just took all of our... By you guys, I mean Yankees. <laughs> and by my people, I mean the Southerners. First of you all... You guys wouldn't even let us have a celebration, Ugh. a feast, a giving One, of thanks. you're from Virginia, which is like... The home of Jamestown. The South Light, because you're kind of in the middle Two, I'm also speaking as a Midwesterner, which, yeah, a lot of the people who said the Midwest came from New England. I just think that as Americans as a whole, we tend to think of ourselves as one version of history, which is New England. But there is this a Southern version of history, and there's a Southwestern version of Mostly history. Mostly full of racist lies, but yeah. <laughs> And there's also the Southwestern version of history, which I think, especially right now, was important to remember because there is a lot of racism in America against Spanish speakers, but Spanish culture in America predates a lot of English culture, right? Remember Mexican-American War? We went in and took over. Yeah. <laughs> like, we took a lot of land away from Mexico. So a lot of the area that we're really upset about people speaking Spanish in was Spanish before it became American. So there are other versions of this American story. So in a way, all I'm saying is that this Plymouth colony is not the first colony. So important to remember. 
So they arrive in 1620. In the fall of 1621, some people are still alive, which is worth celebrating when you're talking about 17th century American history. So here's a primary source from Edward Winslow, who actually wrote a letter home to some friends. It's dated December 1621. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together. After we had gathered the fruits of our labors, they four in one day killed as much fowl as, with a little help beside, served the company almost a week, at which time amongst our recreations we exercised our arms. Those are guns, not actually their, like, their arms. Their guns. Their biceps. Not their biceps, their firearms. Many of the Indians came among us, and amongst the rest their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, and upon the captain and others. And although it will be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. So lovely not only did not everybody die the first year which is pretty much the best they can hope for after landing in this new land they have plenty they're not starving and they had a big party for three days and they had fowl and they had five deer and the indians showed up right and they exercised their arms and they had recreations with a capital r sounds incredible it sounds like a real party yeah. doesn't it and they probably also had since they were on the harbor they probably had seafood too maybe fish definitely eels which were a big party treat absolutely a thanksgiving kind of food absolutely yeah. thanksgiving kind of food definitely oysters tons of oysters definitely definitely probably corn Definitely, probably squash, probably cooked together in a pottage, which is a kind of like thick stew. Might maybe lobsters too. And this is what in the time would have been called a harvest home, which is like a fall harvest celebration if things were going well. Okay? So it wasn't called Thanksgiving. Definitely not called Thanksgiving because there were such things as Thanksgivings, but Thanksgivings were celebratory days declared by the church to give a Thanksgiving to God. And these were usually declared, it could be any time of year, and these were after, ooh, like important dates, like God relieved a drought, it finally rained, or there had been a famine that had finally been relieved, and then you declare a day Thanksgiving. And you're not celebrating with recreations or exercising arms or five deer that the Indians brought, you're usually just going home and praying, right, to give thanks to God. Sounds good. Sounds good. But, but not as fun as this party exercising your arms right yeah. yeah this sounds like a real party and like a real sense of relief i think after this first year of colonizing america and this at least temporary friendship with the native peoples that are in the same area too in this moment everybody's friends everybody's hanging everybody's eating so a thanksgiving and a harvest home were two very different things so we have puritans having a harvest home not pilgrims having a thanksgiving right I've been lied to my entire life. About many things, probably. Who could say? Who can say? But at least this specifically, we have been lied to our entire life. So how does this happen? Well, the idea of this Pilgrim's Thanksgiving comes from this bout of post-revolutionary war nostalgia. We break off from the British Empire, and we are really excited about that, right? We're this little country. We did it. And so in 1798, there's this sort of national holiday called Forefathers Day. We think of our forefathers now as being 
Washington and Jefferson and Adams. But in 1798, our forefathers were people like the people you were listing, Winslow and this, that, and the other, Bradford, all the people who were these those founding Puritans in New England. And during the speechifying, which is a great old time word, on Forefathers Day in 1798, one of the people giving the speeches quoted William Bradford's speech that used the word pilgrims. So William Bradford was one of the early governors of Plymouth Plantation. He was a prolific writer. And he wrote a line where he said they knew they were pilgrims, referring to the Puritans who made this journey from England and founded the Plymouth Colony. That line was quoted in a speech on Forefathers Day in 1798. Then it was quoted in a song on the same day. And ever since that day, it caught on as the way of referring to the Puritans in Plymouth as pilgrims. So they just made it up. The Puritans have referred to themselves as pilgrims other than in that one moment from William Bradford. But we started referring to them as pilgrims 150 years later and ever since. What a scam. It kind of is. So Thanksgiving wasn't Thanksgiving. It wasn't called Thanksgiving. Yeah, so it started being called Thanksgiving in 1842. There's a book written about the history of the Puritans called Chronicles of the Pilgrim Fathers of the Colony of Plymouth. So they invoke the word pilgrim. And when they describe, when they quote that letter that I read about the Harvest Home, there's a footnote in this book where it refers to that event as the first Thanksgiving. So in 1842, that's the first time that that Harvest Home is given the name of the first Thanksgiving. Who wrote that book? Some some guy, some historian in the 1840s. What a bunch of bullshit. When this kind of field of history is being, is, is coming about, really. So this, yeah, this whole idea of pilgrims and Thanksgiving really comes out of this sense of American nostalgia for our own history. What do you think about that? Pretty good. Pretty good? Yeah. <laughs> we just kind of made pretty it good up. time. I love... Everything about it. I love that our nation is based on a lie. <laughs> it's not really a lie. I love that your favorite holiday was a fake out. But it's not really a lie. It did happen. It's an actual event. Do you believe in a tooth fairy? Because no. basically Thanksgiving is like a tooth fairy holiday. I don't believe in the tooth fairy because when I was like nine, I lost a tooth and didn't tell my parents about it. And I put it under my pillow and it was still there the next day. I'm always a... A scientist why heart. would the tooth fairy know about that because if the tooth fairy were real she would just know that the tooth was there but if i told my parents maybe parents gotta call somebody about it well because someone's a fairy doesn't mean they know everything no if she was if she's a psychic being she would just know no one said she's psychic you made that up just like that man made up that it was called thanksgiving and they were <laughs> you all tell me the tooth fairy is real i'm not saying that i'm just saying don't be so quick to judge. All I'm saying about Thanksgiving is that we infused it with more meaning. We infused it with nostalgia because we wanted to create a history. Like Europe had, really. Europe has so much history, and we really didn't. And we were really jazzed up about being Americans. So we kind of created more history. But it wasn't an official holiday. People did celebrate it starting post revolution. Mm -hmm. Even the Revolutionary War, we have letters mentioning Thanksgiving. 
but it could be celebrated anywhere between like October and the end of December because we weren't really celebrating Christmas until the middle to late 19th century. So it could be celebrated all over the place. When you're saying it could be celebrated all those different times, yeah. are you saying that everyone celebrated at the same time? No. Or that like, I'm doing it on Tuesday and like Mary Jo's doing it next month on yeah, it could Friday. be family by family. Generally, it seemed to be like state by state, like different states would decide or like a different congregation would decide when their Thanksgiving would be, or you just, or you wouldn't celebrate it at all. Like people would kind of all celebrate Thanksgiving, but there was no national Thanksgiving holiday, or maybe a state would decide when their Thanksgiving holiday would be, or maybe a congregation would decide when their right. Thanksgiving holiday would be, but there was no sort of national holiday. That didn't happen until the Civil War. There was a woman named Sarah Josepha Hale. Sarah Josepha Hale is like, what's the woman who edits Vogue today? Anna Wintour. Mm -hmm. Okay. She's the Anna Wintour of the middle 19th century. She edits Godey's Ladies Book, which is the Vogue of the 19th century. Okay. Not just fashion, but like Vogue today, there are stories about beauty and family and life. I mean, she is the trendsetter. And she started, God, way back in the 1830s, every single fall advocating for a national Thanksgiving day. That this is, she really says, the only American holiday outside of July 4th and Washington's birthday. She says, let's have a third. Let's have Thanksgiving to unite our country. She writes several presidents to have a Thanksgiving day. She's not successful until the Civil War because she really says that in this time when the country is divided, it should be important to have a unifying day. So she does this by not only writing the president, she writes every single state senator, and she also every year writes an editorial in Godey's Ladies Book, again, a very influential magazine that's accompanied, of course, by recipes. Here's a quote from Sarah Hale. Would the next Thanksgiving might be observed in all states on the same day? Then, though the members of the same family be too far separated to meet around one festive board, they would have the gratification of knowing that all were enjoying the blessings of the day. That's so adorable. It's like when two lovers look at the moon and they both see it together. Isn't it so sweet? And then imagine, speaking of the North versus the South, which we're getting so riled up about, your son is fighting. You don't know where he is. Your daughter is a nurse and they are somewhere far away. And you don't know where they are if they're going to come back. But you know if you, have a, if you have a Thanksgiving day that they're celebrating Thanksgiving on the same day as you. That would be so sweet to have happen. So sweet. So in 1863, Abraham Lincoln declares a National Day of Thanksgiving. What a champion. So what? Abraham Lincoln invented Thanksgiving, we'll say. Sarah Hale invented Thanksgiving. Sarah Hale even assist to Abraham Lincoln. Oh, you son of a bitch. Sarah Hale did it. Lincoln is just the president that finally relented and said, yes, this is important to unify the nation. But of course the South was like, we're not going to have any Thanksgiving. Like they resisted. And actually throughout the 19th century, they refused to have Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving Day because it was essentially seen as a Yankee holiday. So it really isn't until the 20th century that Thanksgiving was celebrated in the South. It makes me so sad There's there's been all this bad, bad blood between our peoples for so long. I'm so, so sorry that happened. 
But in the 20th century, there have been so many marvelous contributions to the Thanksgiving table from the, from south, the south, mostly yeah. involving ham. <laughs> and We relented. We gave in, and we thought, hey, if the North is going to make us celebrate this holiday, we might as well, might as well show them good. how to cook some shit up. Right? Would you like to know what would be on a Northern Victorian Thanksgiving table? I would be interested in hearing that. Okay, so this would be like from just after, like just after the Civil War. Um, a Victorian holiday Thanksgiving table could... Wait, are there eels? No, no. So only the first Thanksgiving had eels. Yeah, probably through the 18th century there might be some eels. All right, continue. Okay. Sorry, sorry for the interruption. No, I think it's a fair question. Oyster soup, turkey with savory stuffing... A sirloin of beef, a leg of pork, a loin of mutton, gravy, celery, a goose, two ducks, a chicken pie, cranberry sauce, pickles. The pickles could include sweet mangoes, which are stuffed and pickled young melons. Chow chow, which is like a sweetened mix of different things. You know chow chow. I know chow chow. You're nodding with a sense. Bell peppers, peaches or cucumbers. Mashed potatoes and turnips, cabbage, canned tomatoes and corn, Baked sweet potatoes, boiled onions, fruit preserve, like grape jelly or stewed peaches, butter, wheat bread, plum pudding, mincemeat pie, pumpkin pie, apple pie, custards, rich cakes, which are like yeast cakes that have a lot of fruit and eggs, Indian pudding, which is, I don't know, you got Indian pudding? It's like cornmeal, maple syrup, spices. Sounds good. Fresh fruits, sweet meats, like candies or preserved fruits, and cheese. Sounds like a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. My big question, though, is did they just lay the celery on the table? (laughs) Or did it have, like, a a special place at the Thanksgiving (laughs) table? Are you leading me on with the celery because I like to talk about it? There's only one thing that I love about food, and that is the display of celery in the 18th to 19th century. Celery, it may seem odd that it was mentioned so specifically, but it was actually a new vegetable in the 19th century. Did you know that? I didn't know that, actually. It was wild up through the 18th century, and it was really only, I believe, through the end of the 18th century that they had bred the bitterness out of the wild vegetable and had domesticated it. So it was a relatively new domestic vegetable, so that's why people were so fascinated with it. And it was grown slightly differently in that it was blanched. Not blanched in that it was boiled in hot water. Mm. I guess you can't really boil something in cold water, but you know what I'm (laughs) saying. Blanched in the field, which meant that it was either buried, like leeks are buried, so that it grew white when you took it out of the ground, or they would use boards to protect it from the sunlight. So it was coming out of the ground um, white, too. So it had more of a delicate flavor and appearance. It was such a special and exciting vegetable to people that people who gave like table setting advice, like Sarah Hale, like this was right. something that appeared appear in Goaties. They would say you put your turkey in the middle and your casters went on the other side and your casters would be things like vinegar, soy sauce, uh, mustard, salt, pepper, that's your casters. On the other side went your celery in the celery holder. What is a celery holder? Well, in the middle of the 19th century, it was a blown or leaded glass vase. So it was almost like putting flowers on your table. Because if you can imagine, you've got your your celery sticks with the leaves attached, because the leaves are quite flavorful, actually. And you put your celery in there straight up in this like kind of footed vase. So you've got this beautiful 
array of celery. By the end of the 19th century, the fashion turned to flat trays for your celery where you'd lay it on the table. And it was always served raw and crunchy and it stayed on the table until the dessert was served. So celery was very important to the Thanksgiving table. And it, it delights me too. It's, it's amazing. It is amazing. Oh, celery. And I mean, is there anything else that grabbed you about the 19th century menu? It's just really long. People live closer, right? We weren't so far flung across the country. So your Thanksgiving day was going to be a lot, a lot of people who was hosting. But also I think one of the things that grabbed me is the amount of meat, right? Mm -hmm. Today we put one meat on the table, turkey. But of course, turkeys were smaller in the 19th century. So you're not going to be able to serve just the turkey, but also you're going to have a lot more people. So you were going to put multiple meats on your table. And in the 19th century, considered almost as important as the turkey was the chicken pie. All the 19th century menus and all the kind of nostalgic literature about Thanksgiving always talk about the chicken pie, which had layered like jointed meats covered in like pepper and salt and a generous portion of butter and then a soft puff pastry crust. And Thanksgiving could not be Thanksgiving without the chicken pie. Why did we get rid of it? Because turkeys got bigger, I guess. Tur fuck turkeys, because that turkeys. sounds delicious. It sounds like really, yeah, it's supposed to be like this moist, like stewed, like chickeny. We need to bring chicken pies back to the Thanksgiving table. Here's a quote. This is from, um, this is actually from a book that Sarah Hill wrote, which is all about like her nostalgic um, New England childhood called Northwood. This is from the chapter on Thanksgiving. The pie, which is wholly formed of the choicest parts of fowls, enriched and seasoned with a profusion of butter and pepper, and covered with excellent puff paste, is like the celebrated pumpkin pie, an indispensable part of a good and true Yankee Thanksgiving. So when we have Thanksgiving, yeah. we have to have A, chicken pie, mm. B, eels, <laughs> C, five deer, yeah, you gotta get some venison on the and table. Celery. Venison too, not just the five deer, but like venison lasted for a really long time. Because it's fall, it's hunting season, like you see all those meats, like you gotta put that on the table. In this menu, there's like mutton and things like that, but venison could have very, very easily been on the table. I'm also delighted by how many things are still around from this menu. Like the pumpkin pie has not gone anywhere. And pies, like pumpkin pie, mincemeat pie, fruit pies, those were some of the earliest forms of convenience food. You made all your pies in fall during harvest season. And then sometimes you would, you would make these crusts, they were originally called coffins, that were so sturdy that one source said they could not be broken if a wagon wheel went over it. And you would sometimes top off the filling with clarified butter as an extra preservative. And then you would put them out in like your storehouse, like a shack outside. And then the temperature would drop cold enough that they would often freeze. So if you had company that would suddenly pop up, you could just go to the shack and get a pie. It's a pie shack. Pie shack. It's like a refrigerator that lived outside. Exactly. And then you could kind of pop off the top and maybe put a little like fresh sugar or some spices or something on it and put it in the oven to heat it up. Fresh pie. It's like a microwave. It's, it's kind of like a microwave except it's, you know, the, the 19th century and it's your oven. So people made all, and like mincemeat itself is kind of a preserved, you know, like highly sugared meat. And most of these early pies were highly sugared, highly spiced. That, that in itself is, is preserving. So pies were on the table, the celery. 
Um, sweet potatoes were a big part too. The marshmallows didn't come into the 20th century though when marshmallows were really being pushed in the early 20th century. And in 1918, there was like a sweet potato grower's guide. And that's the first documented recipe for sweet potatoes covered with marshmallows. They were being used as a substitute for meringue. They were appearing in a lot of recipes as labor saving. You don't have to beat egg whites forever. Just use marshmallows instead. You look thoughtful. Huh. No, I'm just thinking about all the situations now in which I could take like a s'more mm -hmm. and use meringue instead of marshmallows because of course now we have electrified beaters as opposed to in 1918 we had to do it by hand right. so you you know it was much easier to go buy a marshmallow and substitute it but now we could just make meringue I mean, yeah, they're, but they're not, not really comparable not at all which is why i'm interested in uh, having a little experiment meringues are tastier i think i don't know but of course the green bean casserole i'm kind of fascinated in because it's really the only thing that came about in the 20th century that has is a consistent addition to our Thanksgiving table. Because when you think of all the side dishes, which I think is really where it's at at Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. the stuffing, the graving, the sweet potato casserole, with, without the marshmallows has been around forever since the 18th century. When we're forgetting stuffing, all right, stuffing, sweet potatoes, pies, gravy, everything. That's about it. No, there's tons of mashed potatoes. Everything you could come up with has been part of Thanksgiving since the Revolutionary War, except for the green bean casserole. How did they just invent some new dish? You can't just invent some new dish like you're a bunch of scientists inventing food like you invent inventions. But that's exactly what happened. No, that can't be true. Do you know this story? Are you just setting me up? You are. It's an assist. It's an assist that is poorly done. They all know that you're cheating. There's this woman with the incredible name of Dorcas Riley. She sounds cool. She's, she's a goddess among men. She worked for Campbell's Soup in 1955, and she worked in their test kitchen. And her job was to make recipes out of Campbell's food products. And so she went to the Campbell's Food Kitchen, and she just wanted to make a recipe that used Campbell's food products, but also specifically used things that all women had on hand in their kitchen in 1955. Canned green beans and a little bit of soy sauce and you had your mushroom soup and your french's fried onions and that's it that's like all that goes in that thing I, my favorite part of that is that you would just have fried onions lying around well maybe you had to go buy that but no, you definitely had to i refuse to believe that because i've recently started eating a lot of food with fried onions on it you do the have them lying around. Yeah. And they are so good that They're I don't so see good. why they are not on every food. That I don't know either. Yeah, this is like they only sell French's fried onions pretty much during November and December. Like millions of dollars worth of French's fried onions. Um, she's been deemed the mother of comfort food. She does always keep these ingredients on hand at her house. She is still alive just in case someone stops by and needs her to like whip, <laughs> whip it, it up. up. She t still thinks about the recipe though. Like she comes up with new versions of it with carrots or whatever. And in 2002, she was added to the National Inventors Hall of Fame where she donated the original recipe card to the museum. And there's adorable pictures of her online with this enormous tray of green bean casserole where she's scooping it out to people who have come to meet her at the Adventures Hall of And her Bay. name is Dorcas? Dorcas Riley. It's a good Irish name. Sounds good. Thank you, Dorcas. 
I love green beans casserole and I also do think it's a travesty to make everything from scratch because you know what happens you do it and you make everything from scratch and you saute the mushrooms or whatever bologna you're going to do and it tastes exactly the same as Dorcas Riley's recipe no it doesn't Dorcas Riley's tastes way better it tastes way better you're probably right and anyway I guess my follow-up is if you're interested you should go to my tumblr or you should google it because I put together a lovely assemblage of presidents touching turkeys because it is the annual tradition for the president of the United States to pardon Thanksgiving turkey which actually it was only who was it Bush senior now I'm pop quizzing myself I think it was Bush senior that pardoned the first turkey before that, the presidents would just look at the turkeys and then they would go to the kitchen and get <laughs> cooked. But starting with George Bush Sr., he would be, and they would get to live and go live in a green pasture. But there are all, there's like a hundred years worth of bizarre photos of presidents standing awkwardly next to or like awkwardly poking turkeys. Like hover hand the turkeys. Mm-hmm. The turkeys do not look happy, even the ones that are getting pardoned. So that is on my Tumblr. Four pounds flour. That Tumblr dot com dot u dot blogspot so speaking of turkey i covered the sides again here's the thing okay okay pie is the best part of it is but look let's talk we're talking about turkey we're talking about turkey right now let's talk turkey let's talk turkey uh-huh what percent of americans eat turkey on thanksgiving out of all the Americans who eat turkey? Well, that would be 100%. You mean who are celebrating? Because anyone else is a communist. What percent of Americans eat turkey on Thanksgiving? 100%. 88%. That's still it's pretty still high. It's still pretty high. It's yeah. pretty high. Uh, what... There's only 12% of sorry pusses. And I imagine that there are vegetarians and vegans. Probably. Yeah. Probably. So 88% of Americans eat turkey on Thanksgiving. That is a, a real statistic. But I have two statistics that I think is probably true. Mm. The percent of Americans who are stressed out about their turkey mm. is 100%. And the percent of Americans that think their turkey tastes like garbage is also 100%. Because I... turkey, turkey is always the worst food that you eat on Thanksgiving. And you just think, why can't Thanksgiving be over so I can eat this on a sandwich covered in ketchup and then someone will make a soup out of the bones? I always fear when I make my turkey, because it always comes out of the oven looking really, really beautiful. But my fear is that when I carve into it, it's going to be like the scene in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, <laughs> where it just deflates into this dry It heat. does have a scaffolding of bones on it, so yeah. you don't really have to worry about that happening. I guess that's true. There are plenty of other things you can worry about, though. I know, I know, but I've been cooking a turkey for years, and one, I have to say, I don't let anyone else carve my turkey. I don't understand why the women spend all the labor cooking the turkey, and then why the men get to step up and carve it, because then it's like, oh, yay! It's like, you didn't do shit. You're just sticking a knife into it, and you're doing it poorly. And again, maybe this is just my modern feminist reading of it, but I think that's bullshit. So I went and learned how to carve a turkey, and I don't let, and whenever someone is like, oh, can I carve that for you? I'm like, no, get away from my turkey. One. Two, I don't worry anymore since I learned about brining. My mom would try to make me cut the turkey 
and I would say, I don't know how to do this. You're a man. It's in your genetic I code. Could, I could That's cook a turkey better than I could cut a turkey. The assumption is that you inherently know how to carve a turkey. It doesn't make any sense. Also, is it in your genetic code to know how to cook a turkey? Because yeah. I hear that you brine it, so... I love brining. You're anti-brining. We'll talk about why in a bit. All right. I support brining it. I think it makes a moist and tender bird. Now, the thing is about turkey on Thanksgiving... And turkey in general. Turkey is like the champion of all birds that you eat. Is it, it wasn't always turkey that was the champion of all birds that you ate. Mm. But there is a long history of horrible birds that we eat just because they seem fancy. Like bustards. Bustards. They're a big European land bird. It was like a peacock. Like all those birds that you ate in Europe for some reason. Trust me, bustards. I trust you. But speaking of peacocks, peacocks in the 12th and 13th centuries, that was like the bird to eat. Everyone's like, I got a peacock. Look at how fancy this bird is. We're all going to eat it. We're all going to love it. Problem is, peacocks taste disgusting. Mm. So what you would normally do was take some other bird and then just put the peacock feathers Mm. all over it and be like, this is a peacock. And it happens to taste way better than a peacock should. And I think that we're still stuck in the same mindset currently with thanksgiving but we just don't have another bird to substitute for our turkey so if if we were to go out and ask those 100 percent of americans that hate their turkeys why they hate their turkeys what what do you think they would say turkeys are dry turkeys are dry turkey eating a turkey is like putting a desert in your mouth it's like (laughs) chowing down on uh, a sandbox Mm -hmm. it's like being on the surface of the sun no that Mm. would just be hot Mm -hmm. anyway turkeys are simply dry and the Mm -hmm. reason has to do with white meat versus dark meat are you you have preferences between the two of them i do but you're not gonna approve so i always thought that white meat was the meat to get because when you go to kfc or anything like that and they're like what meat do you want and you're like i'm eight years old i don't know And everyone around you says, white meat, white meat. You just say white meat, too. It wasn't until very late in my life, I was in my 20s, that I discovered the joy of chicken thighs and of dark meat and of meat that actually doesn't taste like a tough, dry desert in your mouth, but rather a supple, delicious, tender, flavorful, beautiful animal hunk that you can put in your mouth and eat. I think the problem is that with most dark meat, people aren't hitting that proper temperature where the dark meat is prepared properly. Like, for the most part, it's kind of, like, stringy and gelatinous and gross. Well, the issue is that when you are cooking your white meat and your dark meat, Mm -hmm. or your white meat, you want to get it up to about 145 degrees Mm -hmm. uh, and then just be done with it. As soon as it hits 145, get it out of there. Whereas for your dark meat, you want to get it up to about 160 to 180 and mm. hold it there so it can break down all of the, the tougher bits that you would say, you know, contribute to the stringiness and to the, the toughness that you might otherwise have. So when you're cooking a turkey, your big problem is half of it's white meat, half of it's dark meat. They have to be 20 degrees different. Yeah. What can you do in order to, you know, get your... your white meat done 
while also getting your dark meat done or get your dark meat done without overcooking your light meat. White meat and dark meat is not randomly distributed through the turkey. Uh, it has to do with the way muscle fibers are inside sure. an animal. So you have fast twitch fibers and slow twitch fibers and fast twitch are say you're running around and slow twitch are you're standing all the time. Sure. You know? Um, so your slow twitch would be, say, in your thighs, because you're turkey and you're just, like, walking around a little bit, you're standing, it's more for long-term, like, slow, slow and steady kind of exertion, whereas fast twitch are for, obviously, fast things. Right. Let's say there is a president that is sprinting at you from the bushes and you want to fly into a tree to escape from him, you are going to use your fast twitch muscle fibers in your right. breasts in order to flap your wings and get up into that tree. The president wants to awkwardly touch you. Yes, yeah, president, the president wants to touch you, so you want to get out of there. And what happens is, due to this, the slow twitch muscle fibers, such as your thighs, it's your dark meat, um, end up having much more connective tissue inside of them, much more fat myoglobin which is something that brings oxygen to your muscles because they need a steady supply of oxygen to be able to stand around all day whereas your fast twitch muscle fibers don't really need all of that uh, myoglobin because they're used very quickly uh, they can work without oxygen and it's only later that they get repaired from um, trying to work without oxygen so the reason why dark meat is dark is because mm -hmm. of the presence of myoglobin which is used for Long-term tasks. So, Americans don't really like dark meat. You don't like dark meat. Mm, right? So I don't like poorly prepared dark meat, which I feel like is what you get a lot of times here. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's so disliked that for the longest time, all of the chicken breasts would be sent to Americans, and then all the, like, thighs and legs and anything mm -hmm. else would just be shipped to say south america or russia because everyone there really likes dark meat but now russia it doesn't want them no it says don't don't some give your, them to us don't send me your chicken legs anymore i don't know what russia's gonna do i don't know either we talked about how turkeys are larger now they're yeah. much bigger they're grown for boobs. their meat for yeah, their, their breast yeah. meat here's the thing what kind of meat is breast meat it's the fast twitch. It's white meat. Yeah, it's the white meat. And so the issue is that on a turkey, there's a ton of white meat because they've been bred to have a lot of white meat and not as much dark meat. So it becomes even tougher. But here's the thing. You don't want your turkey to be dry. So you say, great, I'm going to put a bunch of water in my turkey. I'm going to, you know, drop my turkey in a bucket of water and let it sit there and get real juicy. And then I'm going to cook it. Well, what would water taste like, or even brine taste like, if you let a turkey sit in it for like a day? Uh, blood. Maybe I was going for turkey-ish, <laughs> is how it's going to taste, right? Like, if you drank okay. that water, you'd be like, this water tastes like a raw turkey. You can't ask me a bizarre question and expect a specific answer. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I believe when we did this lecture in real life, Everyone in the audience got it right, so I'm going to hold it against you. But here's the thing. Where did all that turkey flavor come from that's now in the water? Inside the turkey. Oh, yeah. So mm -hmm. uh, you and your brining, uh, it sounds like by letting it sit in the shitload of water, mm -hmm. 
all of the flavor that would be inside the turkey is actually leaving the turkey and being sucked out of the turkey and taken into the water surrounding it. But I want my turkey to taste like the things in the brine, the salt and the flavorings, and not like boring turkey flavor. So the thing That's is, unless Turkey's you're injecting boring. your turkey, that flavor is not getting into your turkey. Mm. It is maybe getting an eighth of an inch into your turkey. It's just, it's not getting anywhere. It's not doing much of anything. Mm. But the magic thing that is happening is the salt. Mm -hmm. The salt is doing some magic um, on the outside of the bird. And what it's doing is there are these proteins on the outside and the salt, I guess, denatures them mm. and then lets them hold more water than they otherwise would. So what you could do, instead of getting a big trunk and filling it full of very heavy, you know, brine or broth and letting your turkey set in it, is something called dry brining or self-brining, mm -hmm. where all you do is cover the meat in salt. Mm -hmm. And what the salt does is it pulls out the water from the turkey. Mm -hmm. And then the salt dissolves in that water, and then the salt works its magic on the proteins on the outside mm. of the turkey, allowing it to hold on to more water through the cooking process, and then the water gets reabsorbed. So you're not losing any flavor to a brine, and you're still getting all of the benefits of having a more protected turkey. Do you rinse the salt off before you cook it, or do you put the salt on and you cook it? I would say, what do you do when you have a brine turkey? You rinse the brine. You rinse it off. Yeah, it rinses guy off. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because it's already absorbed all that salt, so you kind of rinse it, but then it's still super salty. Yeah, and so it, I mean, some of the salt stays with it because it's been absorbed, um, and so there's more flavor thanks to the salt and more concentrated flavor, and you get that nice crisp skin, and it's great. But here's the thing, when you have a nice juicy bird one of the big reasons why you think you have a nice juicy bird is because of the crispy skin mm -hmm. you bite into the crispy skin and right behind the crispy skin is something that isn't crispy and like the skin is dry it's not tough but it's just it's the opposite of moist so when you hit that flesh you mm -hmm. say to yourself this flesh is so moist and mm -hmm. delicious because the covering to it is very very dry on top of that when you brown the outside of your turkey, you're making all these wonderful flavor chemicals through the Maillard reaction. So the major reason that you get moist meat when you're eating a turkey is because your mouth is salivating from it being delicious, crispy skin. Because I also hate a goopy turkey skin. Yeah, yeah. No one wants that at all. Mm -mm. Absolutely. So the magic to skin is you need two steps in order to turn skin into something nice and crispy and delicious. Number one, you need to convert the collagen into gelatin. And number two, you need to evaporate out all of the water. So the first step to, to take all of the fibers that would be tough and goopy on the collagen and convert it into gelatin, you need some water and you need some time and you need a high temperature. Whereas evaporating the water, you just need a nice high temperature. So there's a bunch of different ways that people do it. And some people say coat your bird in oil and mm. it'll allow for better transfer of heat between the skin and the air around it. Blah, blah, blah. Let's say you wanted to really cover your bird in an oiled skin. How would you cook your bird? 
How would I cook my bird? How would you cook a bird? Let's say you had a big pot. You had uh, you you love your oil on that bird skin. I could deep fry it. You could deep fry it. Yes. If you want your house to burn down, you can deep fry your turkey. Um, it started in the south because everyone already had a pot for like cooking crabs or mm -hmm, crawfish mm -hmm. or anything like that. So one other thing that comes from the south for Thanksgiving. It's also warmer, so you can do it outside, whereas up north. Kind of cold. I've fried plenty of things outside in the wintertime, but yeah, I, yeah. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Uh, so oil's much better at conducting heat, so it cooks your turkey twice as fast mm. as uh, instead of doing it inside. And so that's kind of less time for it to dry out. No one who runs an insurance company likes you to deep fry your bird because it just burns down your house, unfortunately. Um, there are really good videos on the internet of people who are attempting to deep fry turkeys and then it all just catches on fire. And then the video cuts out and you hope that everyone survived. But why? Why does the house burn down? Well, generally, uh, they make the mistake of doing it under an awning and they fill up the oil before they put the turkey in. So you have an open flame underneath this pot. They're doing it outside. Or you can even try to do it inside, which is even worse idea. So you have a big pot, open flame underneath, you fill it with oil, and you go to put your turkey in once it's up to frying temperature. Now, what happens when you have an almost full of oil pot, and then you try to put more stuff in it? Well, the oil is going to overflow, Soma. And what happens when that oil that overflows, this incredibly hot oil, because it is at deep frying temperature, hits that open flame that is sitting right under the pot? It's going to catch on fire. Yeah, it catches on fire. And then what happens when you have a huge pot of oil that is catching on, on fire? fire? Yeah, so everything else catches on fire and no one's happy, but there's some pretty good YouTube videos about it. So, Isn't there something about like if there's moisture on the bird's skin, too, that can also cause problems? Yeah, if if you put it's for frozen turkeys so oh. if you put a frozen turkey in there's way too much moisture on the okay. skin and it starts to pop out it's like you have a pan you're trying to fry oil in and you mm. accidentally flick mm. some water in and it pop 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 sends mm -hmm. oil flying and some of that oil can you know go over the edge and catch on fire and uh so the best thing you can do when you're cooking your turkey is actually to cut it all apart and then cut it into pieces and cook your white meat separately Mm. from your dark meat but no but what's one... that called that's how that has a fancy name well there's two there's two things one you can just cut it all into pieces mm. and then throw it into the oven and take every part out as it's done mm. number two you can do something called spatchcocking mm -hmm. which is pretty much where you cut the turkey down the middle and you spread it out so it's kind of making a snow angel mm. in the oven as it's being cooked and so what that does is you're kind of evening out the turkey and flattening it out. So as the heat is coming from the burner, it is more evenly distributed over your turkey instead of being very hot on, the, say, the top of the turkey and not so hot on the bottom of the turkey. It also has more skin that's directly facing the heat so that skin gets much crispier much more quickly, which then allows you to have the idea of it being moisture whenever you're eating it. And there's less, quote, inside area hmm. for your bird. Instead of having that big empty cavity on mm -hmm. the inside, you've kind of flattened that out so it does cook 
much more evenly. You don't have to worry about anything. But the best part about spatchcocking is it's called spatchcocking. And you're like, why would anyone call anything spatchcocking? And so it's from the word spitchcook, which has to do with either cooking a rooster or cooking an eel. So I would like eels. to say, yes, the eels are really the thing that brings together Thanksgiving, whether it's, it's from the, Thanksgiving the science end or the historical one. And it's just eels, eels all the time. Yeah. But most importantly, what happens after Thanksgiving? What happens after you've eaten your food? You get sleepy. Yeah. So why do you get sleepy? Well, they always say it's tryptophan. Yes, so tryptophan is an amino acid. Uh, it's an essential amino acid, so we need it to live, and it's in turkey. Supposedly, it makes it sleepy. And so the thing is that tryptophan is not just in turkey. It's in a lot of different foods. It's in cheese. It's in... Dairy. It's in, dairy, it in dairy, it's in cheese. Oh, yeah, because it's in, like, warm milk. They yeah, say it makes yeah. you get sleepy because of tryptophan. Uh, my favorite things are per 100 calories, uh, spirulina hmm. has 370 milligrams, elk has 375 hmm. milligrams, sea lion has hmm. 661 milligrams, and sea lion kidney oh. comes in at the top of the tryptophan mountain with 1,290 milligrams per 100 calories. I do enjoy a little warm sea lion kidney when I'm having some trouble sleeping. Yeah. I just, you know, pop some in the microwave and then I just, I usually Basically, It'll just send you right to sleep. Yeah, very, very pleasant. Here's the thing though. Uh, people say tryptophan puts you to sleep uh, because it's a precursor to serotonin. Mm. So you eat the tryptophan, it converts to serotonin, serotonin makes you happy and then you fall asleep. But unfortunately, pretty much any food that has protein in it has tryptophan because tryptophan is an essential amino acid. Proteins are built out of amino acids. So anything that has protein pretty much has tryptophan in it. Right. So, you know, like you said, cheddar cheese full of right. tryptophan. And the thing is, if it's not tryptophan making you sleepy, well, what is it making you sleepy? So two, two parts. Um, number one... Your nervous system recognizes that you just ate food, and then it puts you in the opposite of fight or flight. It's called postprandial somnolence, oh. which is you just being sleepy. Because it's like, you just ate, just relax. You chilled out. And you're like, no, I want to go run away from mm -hmm. the president that's coming at me. Or I want to go fight the president that's coming at me. But it won't let you do that. Mm -hmm. It just wants you to get sleepy. Uh, and then also... There's issues about uh, insulin levels and glucose. Some people say it's because the blood is going from your brain into your stomach, stomach to help yeah. you digest things. That's not true. Mm. But basically, it's just uh, your nervous system recognizing that you're full of food and you should probably sure. relax a little bit. Yeah. So, in the end, you should only eat eels for Thanksgiving in order to kind of embrace... That's all I'm going to serve. Right? That's... Mm -hmm. We need to do it. You have to nail their head into the cutting board first, and that's how you can skin them. I learned that from Top Chef. That's God bless Top Chef. Mm. I don't know. I actually don't remember if I saw it on Top Chef or Iron Chef first, but it was done on both of those shows. So you're an expert on eel. Expert. Come on over to my house for eels this Thanksgiving. Does eel have uh, white meat or dark meat? Mm. Most fish is white meat because the ocean has very little physical resistance yep. except if you're just using your your fast switch you're like 
you don't have to use slow twitch to support your own body weight, yeah. basically. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So you you have very, very, very little dark meat as a fish because there's nothing that you have to resist all the time. So most fish are white meat because you, yeah, you don't need strong muscles as a fish. So that would be my guess, but I don't know. No, it's true. It's true, which is why when you cook fish, you have to cook it very quickly because yeah. otherwise it would dry you out can't much like a turkey ps white meat sucks and there's so little dark meat that we usually just cut it out of fish we don't even eat it yeah yeah, and, yeah. um don't deep fry a turkey and your chicken nope no don't deep fry a turkey and your chicken <laughs> don't deep fry a turkey and chicken good because you should clearly put the chicken inside of the turkey before you deep and then put it. in a like a partridge in that mm -hmm. and then put a dormouse in that a wren somewhere in and then there put a wren in that uh, and then put a yellow-throated vireo where you put the thing on your head and you <laughs> oh the you the, can't have god watching you, you eat that bird because it's so you. tiny the ortolan yeah the ortolan yeah <laughs> oh god so there's a bird uh dear listeners uh called an ortolan and in his actually France. this I was going to say in historic times, no, but I believe... Right, no, you can still find yeah. it. It's, it's technically illegal, but there are places where they'll still catch them. It is a little finch, and you you drown them in brandy. You first put them in the dark and fatten them on, like, I don't know, nuts and berries, and you drown them in brandy, and then you saute them, and then when you eat them, you swallow them whole, and uh, you, you chomp them, and it's... you. And you cover your head with a napkin... So that God can't see what's going on under the napkin. Also to contain the aromas of the eating of the bird. I like the God part better because that is more amazing. It's a pretty but yes, intense experience. And you're like crunching little bird bones and all their organs. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Ortolans. Anyway, Thanksgiving. And I think also if you have just lessons learned lessons from mine. Learned. If, if you have like a, like a teenager or like mm -hmm. a preteen. Mm -hmm. That's kind of into cooking, or maybe not that into cooking, but you are looking for some help mm. in the kitchen during Thanksgiving. You should probably teach them the word spatchcock mm. in exchange for manual labor. Because they could imagine if you're 13, mm -hmm. you're running around all of your very fancy family members. They're all dressed up in their sweaters and their mm. collared shirts, Holiday and you just yeah. keep saying, Spatchcock. We're spatchcocking the turkey. I'm I'm in charge yeah. of spatchcocking. We have the spatchcocking going on. Right. It would be so much fun. Yeah, sure. And you could say, no, no, it's simply a method of cooking a turkey mm, that I is way more even. It, I think. You might have to sit in a corner if you don't explain it, but. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Good luck with your turkeys or eels this year. Bye. Wishing you the best holidays from Sarah and Soma. Bye.